0: You are listening to a podcast from West Hill United Church, located in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. These podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our listeners, volunteers, and members of our community. To donate, go to our website, www.westhill.net, and click on the Canada Helps button, or go to www.westhill.net forward slash donate. Good morning, West Hill. us try that one more time. Good morning, West Hill. Good morning, Good morning West Hill. Welcome, one and all, eh? <laughs> to our, our Canadiana uh, extravaganza, I would say. Uh, I think it's going to be a little bit different. Uh, We've got lots of the different things planned for today, um, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, welcome, one and all. Uh, especially if you're visiting with us for the first time. Oh, we have someone from Newfoundland. And you, sir? From Connecticut. Ah. <laughs> Welcome. If you are visiting for the first time, um, there's an opportunity after service to uh, enjoy a uh, little a coffee and a chat, if you want. Uh, at the back, there's also information that gives you a little bit more of a profile of who Westdale is and what we do and how we do it. We wish to acknowledge that we are on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the new Credit First Nations lands, which lands were previously occupied by the Seneca and Huron-Wendat First Nations.
1: No, I'm just
2: I, yeah. asking Peter to change. Peter. Okay. I had the most wonderful time picking slides to match the different parts of today's presentation that were Canadian. And there, it was just lovely seeing the different um, ways the flag is used. Very different than some countries allowing that pattern to be used in different ways. Um, always respectfully, of, uh, hopefully. And I, and I linked it strongly. Uh, any picture you see, Greta has a picture right now on her screen um, it's just the globe with the Sun coming up behind it and every time I look at a globe or a picture of the earth and I don't see the country markers and the boundaries and the, 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 the divisions that we put this world in I think that's how it was and that's how it could be but we've crisscrossed it with boundaries and that's part of the life we ground ourselves in we are crisscrossed with boundaries. And and people today, if you're listening to the news, there is all sorts of ways people are loving their country or standing up for their country or putting their country first that are very troubling. And there are ways that are beautifully, refreshingly wonderful. And that's the life we're grounded in, the good and the bad, the helpful and the harmful. And so um, today when we're thinking particularly about our country, it's to ground ourselves in the life of our country in all its reality, and then choosing how do we make this place better for everyone in it, but also being a good neighbor to everyone around it. Because if we took the crisscrosses off, it wouldn't make any difference. Of course, then we could divide people by color, and by race, and by accent, and by background. And we're so good at dividing, and so we ask for the wisdom to knock out of ourselves those divisions and live lovingly um, with, with the whole planet. I love discovering something about you I didn't know before. Well, mostly I love discovering what I, sometimes it's just shocking, but uh, uh, discovered a a gentleman that's in our midst, um, humbly and lovely and told me, I think a few bit ago that he was a musician. I thought that was lovely. Vern Kennedy, if you ever listened to CBC a long time ago, you would have seen music that he has composed and written and sung. He's a trumpeter, he's a chorister, he's a a creative writer. And a time ago, he was asked to contribute to songs written about Canada for its anniversary. And he, uh, it's been played, if I'm right, Vern, the, the Markham Orchestra is where you where you played and it is amazing just Google Vern Kennedy and and here he is with us so uh, Babette has recorded got the recording of a song he wrote to celebrate Canada and we've got the words on the screen here with his permission and we'll play the song it's sung by um, a choral group and I put the words there um, as clearly as, as I can but sometimes against the background of a Canadian picture so you can squint and get the words but it's just Beautiful, and we are honored that you let us know that, um, and that you've allowed us to enjoy it on, on Canada Day, and and with the, the other things we're going to do. It's a perfect, beautiful match. So,
1: we're having uh, Michael McCreary, who. Uh, Participates in citizenship exercises and and takes the oath. Here's the oath uh, said by new Canadians. uh, Is sharing that with us today as a way for us to um, recommit ourselves to this country that Vern so beautifully described in his song. Uh, And so I'm going to invite Michael to come forward.
3: Suzanne,
1: does does Suzanne have a mic?
4: Good morning. Uh, It is a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'll provide a little background to to what the process that we're about to take part in. Uh, An organization of of which I'm a member for the last 30 years has conducted formal citizenship courts uh, on Canada Day. Um, A formal citizenship court is where uh, new folk are actually awarded Canadian citizenship. And tomorrow we will be awarding uh, Canadian citizenship to about 40 folk. And over the years, we have given citizenship to people that uh, range from Albanians to Zambia, like the, the full stretch. And if you have never attended a formal citizenship court, I would urge you to do so. It's truly a humbling experience. For persons like myself that were born in Canada, I've never taken the oath of citizenship except during military service. And I assume that may be the case for some of us here. So about 20 years ago, the citizenship, a citizenship court, after she had administered the oath to 30, 40 people, uh, when they finished the oath, they became Canadian citizens she offered to the other members of the uh, that were present at the ceremony did they wish to take the oath to reaffirm their canadian citizenship and that was the first time i had ever been exposed to a reaffirmation ceremony and i can tell you that those 40 people that had just become canadian citizens all rose to take the oath again and to which the judge said you can take it, but you don't get two citizenships. Right? So, so tomorrow, we, we will be conducting two uh, ceremonies. A formal one at the East York Civic Center, and that's called the so-called Sunrise Court, because it starts at 6.45 in the morning. And that is because East York sponsors Canada's largest running uh, Canada Day Parade. So the politicians and the people that wish to be in the parade also wish to attend the citizenship court. And they're invited to give give some short remarks. Uh, So that's why it's, it's so early in the morning. And I say to the folks, did anybody think this was a mistake when you got summoned to a citizenship court at 6.45 in the morning and a few nods and a few hands go up? And then I say to them, well, you're part of a very select group because the way the citizenship court is structured, you are the very first people in Canada to become Canadian citizens on Canada Day. And that's the result of the other citizenship courts, which are held all over the country tomorrow, in the earlier time zones, are all held later in the day, we discovered, after a little research. So those folks tomorrow will be uh, the first persons in Canada to become uh, Canadian citizens. So what we're going to do today... Is a reaffirmations ceremony. Obviously, we're not awarding citizenship. Those folks that came, that will be awarded citizenship tomorrow, they have met the residency requirements of the federal government. They have met the, the examination of our of our history, and they have demonstrated to the federal government that they they have proficiency in one of our two uh, uh, official languages. So we We hold the ceremony, and we hold another ceremony in uh, Stanwalo Park at twelve noon where we ad- administer the oath again to folks who wish to reaffirm their citizenship so it's it 's three parts uh, the first part which which i 'll explain is 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 the process, so we are reaffirming our citizenship if if we were doing this formally, we would have an RCMP officer, escort the clerk of the court, dressed in full black robes, the uh, uh, judge, uh, who is a a federal citizenship court judge. He or she will administer uh, a speech and will administer the oath to the people. So we can imagine, perhaps, that it's just not me standing here, but rather an RCMP officer, dressed in red, um, the the two court officials, and all of the people have been assigned uh, seats by by number, and they're called up after after we've said the oath. So this is my introduction. I have an actual speech from one of the citizenship court judges uh, that Suzanne is going to read. After the reading of that speech, I will administer the oath in, uh, in English, uh, sometimes we do it in French. The first one I attended, the uh, citizenship court judge said, now Canada's a bilingual country, so we're going to take the oath in French and English. Well, you could see the fear in the people's eyes when she said uh, we're going to do it in French, but we did it phonetically. So we will uh, take the oath in, uh, in English, and then traditionally we rise and sing the National Anthem. And uh, Scott has been able to uh, put the National Anthem uh, on a slide. Uh, It's it's changed a little, and there's uh, several versions of it. There's the bilingual version, the French version, uh, an English version, and the the so-called modern version which deletes some of the words about um, in all thy son's commands and it changes to in all of us commands, which is obviously much, much more inclusive. So I'll, I'll call Suzanne up and she will read to you the citizenship court speech of um, uh, Judge Norman Allaire.
5: So these are the talking points that Judge Laird used. For each, each year on July 1st, Canadians mark the founding of our country under the 1867 Constitution Act. Today, we celebrate Canada's 152nd birthday. On this day, we celebrate the symbols, events, people, institutions, and values that define us as Canadians and give us our identity. Canadianship is highly valued by people from around the world for many reasons. Many newcomers arrive to become members of the Canadian family because they know that Canada is a tolerant, accepting, and welcoming society that embraces diversity. Our tradition of accepting and celebrating multiculturalism is one characteristic that distinguishes us from other countries around the world. Canadian citizenship has only been in existence since 1947, but the spirit that gives Canadians their special identity has lived since the early days of the Confederation. Persons of different races, cultures, and language joined together in 1867 to start building the new country of Canada. Today's reaffirmation ceremony presents a wonderful opportunity for all of us to reflect on what our Canadian citizenship means. As citizens, we enjoy many rights and freedoms that are unknown in many countries around the world. However, with these rights come responsibilities that all citizens must share. It means sharing a common set of values. It means respecting that we live in a democratic, secular country where individual rights and freedoms are respected. It means that we respect the laws and respect each other and treat one another with dignity. It also means that citizens get back to their communities and Canada in a variety of ways. Volunteerism is important. Over one half of Canadian adults volunteer at something. This is well known at West Hill where we're filled with volunteers. We make a big difference in our neighborhoods by building safe and caring communities. We help those who are less fortunate in our society. We volunteer in schools, hospitals, and various organizations and institutes. We bear arms to defend our country and to assist those who request our help to defend shared values. Our armed forces are respected throughout the civilized world. We participate in a worldwide disaster relief efforts and peacekeeping, peacemaking activities in many war-torn countries. We make a difference by caring for our heritage and environment so that future generations of Canadians can enjoy our vast and beautiful country. Later in this reaffirmation ceremony, you will have an opportunity to take the oath of citizenship, understand the seriousness of the oath. By taking the oath of citizenship today, you are publicly promising to accept your responsibilities of citizenship. And that saying that, you want to help shape Canada's future for generations to come. The oath is a very serious promise. It is your personal commitment to help build an even better, stronger, united, and peaceful Canada. We have earned the right to be proud as Canadians. Happy Canada Day.
4: I'll say just a few words about the oath. It has sort of a historical ring to it because we are pledging allegiance to our head of state, which is, who is uh, Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, Canada is a constitutional monarchy, and a democratically elected uh, parliament. Our head of state is different from our head of government, as I think we all know. So uh, to the extent possible, I'd ask you to rise. Better find the oath that <laughs> there's the... Uh, when, when this ceremony is conducted outside, it's sometimes a little difficult because one of the first requirements is to remove all headgear uh, other than that of a military or uh, religious nature. And invariably, when I'm doing it outside, there'll be four or five young teenagers wearing baseball caps backwards. And they seem to have a little difficulty in equating headgear with ball caps on backwards. But I generally call them out and uh, so we stand. Traditionally, we put up our right hand, if it's our dominant hand. Uh, People often will put one hand over their hearts, not necessary to do so. Other people will hold a holy book of their own de- description in, in their other hand. So I'm, I'm going to lead you. I'm going to say, say, for instance, I swear that I will be faithful. And you're going to repeat, I swear that I will be faithful. And we'll work our way through the oath of allegiance. It's, it is not a long uh, uh, a thing to do. I swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of Canada, her heirs and successors, and that I will faithfully observe the laws of Canada and fulfill my duties as a Canadian citizen. Thank you.
1: Uh, This is the fifth Sunday of the month and we have uh, employed a practice where on the fifth Sunday of the month we are going to have a TED talk and some conversation afterward. The TED talk is going to take the rest of our hour and a half together, but I'm sure the conversation will take place beyond this afterward. Uh, Dennis will bring some questions to us. Uh, Dennis is our curator for these talks because he receives a TED talk every morning uh, in his email and unlike some of us, uh, doesn't delete it, right? He actually watches it every day, so it comes with a broad perspective of the many things that are shared, and today's is by Brene Brown, The Power of Vulnerability. Dennis, did you want to add something before we start? Thank you.
6: As it turns out, uh, there are four five Sunday months in the year and they happen to always be on the same months of the year, December, March, June, September, and January, or December. So I guess that's five, isn't it? (laughs) Anyway, uh, Brené Brown, uh, actually it's Cassandra Brené Brown, uh, PhD, is a research professor at the University of Houston, where she holds the Huffington Foundation Brenny Brown Endowment Chair at the Graduate College of Social Work. So it would be very interesting to you, Scott. She has spent her career studying courage, vulnerability, shame, and empathy, and is the author of five number one New York Times bestsellers. Brown's TED Talk, The Power of Vulnerability, is one of the top five most viewed TED Talks in the world with over 35 million views. Now, how many of you have actually listened to it? Well, I hope you enjoy it again. She is also the first person to have filmed a talk available on Netflix. In fact, I watched it just recently. It's an hour and a half long, and I would recommend anybody who is. Interested in today's presentation to take the time and find some place where you can watch Netflix and watch her presentation She is really quite outstanding Uh, It debuted on Netflix only last April for the first time so it's it's brand new So without ado, uh, let's move on to the TED talk and uh, oh before we do that Uh, I've picked uh, six words out of the presentation that uh, I'd like you to think about as you watch the presentation. Uh, I think they are the theme or core words that she builds around, Uh, the first being shame, the second being connections, Uh, third, belonging, fitting in, vulnerability, and courage. So when we finish the TED Talk, maybe some of you can relate to those, and uh, if you're not too vulnerable, you can share some of your thoughts.
7: So, I'll start with this. A couple of years ago, an event planner called me because I was going to do a speaking event. And she called and she said, I'm really struggling with how to write about you on the little flyer. And I thought, well, what's the struggle? And she said, well, I saw you speak and I'm going to call you a researcher, I think, but I'm afraid if I call you a researcher, no one will come because they'll think you're boring and irrelevant. (laughs) And I was like, okay. And she said, so, but the thing I liked about your talk is, you know, you're a storyteller. So I think what I'll do is just call you a storyteller. And of course, the academic, insecure part of me was like, you're going to call me a what? And she said, I'm going to call you a storyteller. And I was like, oh, why not magic pixie? Um, I was like, I, I don't, I, I, let me think about this for a second. And so I tried to call deep on my courage and I thought... You know, I am a storyteller, I'm a qualitative researcher, I collect stories, that's what I do. And maybe stories are just data with a soul, you know, and maybe I'm just a storyteller. So I said, you know what, why don't you just say I'm a researcher storyteller. And she went, (laughs) there's no such thing. (laughs) So I'm a researcher storyteller. Um, And I'm going to talk to you today. We're talking about expanding perception. And so I want to talk to you and tell some stories about a piece of my research that fundamentally expanded my perception um, and really actually changed the way that I live and love and work and parent. Um, And this is where my story starts. When I was a young researcher, doctoral student, my first year, I had a research professor who said to us, here's the thing. If you cannot measure it, it does not exist. And I thought he was just sweet-talking me. I was like, really? And he's like, absolutely. So you have to understand that I have a bachelor's in social work, a master's in social work, and I was getting my PhD in social work. So my entire academic career was surrounded by people who kind of believed in the life's messy, love it, you know, and I'm more the life's messy, clean it up, (laughs) organize it, and put it into a bento box. And so to think that I had found my way, to found a career that takes me, you know, really one of the big sayings in, in social work is lean into the discomfort of the work. And I'm like, you know, knock discomfort upside the head and move it over and get all A's. That's my, that was my mantra. So I was very excited about this. And so I thought, you know what, this is the career for me because I am interested in some messy topics, but I want to be able to make them not messy. I want to understand them. I want to hack into these things that I know are important and lay the code out for everyone to see. So where I started was with connection, because by the time you're a social worker for 10 years, what you realize is that connection is why we're here. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. This is, this is what it's all about. It doesn't matter whether you talk to people who work in social justice and mental health and abuse and neglect. What we know is that connection, the ability to feel connected, is neurobiologically, that's how we're wired. It's why we're here. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to start with connection. Well, you know that, that situation where you get an evaluation from your boss? And she tells you 37 things that you do really awesome and one thing that you can't, you know, an opportunity for growth. (laughs) Um, And all you can think about is that opportunity for growth, right? Well, apparently this is the way my work went as well because when you ask people about love, they tell you about heartbreak. When you ask people about belonging, they'll tell you their most excruciating experiences of being excluded. And when you ask people about connection, The stories they told me were about disconnection. So very quickly, really about six weeks into this research, I ran into this unnamed thing that absolutely unraveled connection in a way that I didn't understand or had never seen. And so I pulled back out of the research and thought, I need to figure out what this is. And it turned out to be shame. And shame is really easily understood as the fear of disconnection. Is there something about me That if other people know it or see it, that I won't be worthy of connection. The things I can tell you about it, it's universal. We all have it. The only people who don't experience shame have no capacity for human empathy or connection. No one wants to talk about it, and the less you talk about it, the more you have it. What underpinned this shame, this I'm not good enough, which we all know that feeling, I'm not blank enough, I'm not thin enough, rich enough, beautiful enough, smart enough, promoted enough. Um, The thing that underpinned this was excruciating vulnerability. This idea of in order for connection to happen, we have to allow ourselves to be seen, really seen. And you know how I feel about vulnerability. I hate vulnerability. And so I thought this is my chance to beat it back with my measuring stick. I'm going in. I'm going to figure this stuff out. I'm going to spend a year I'm going to totally deconstruct shame, I'm going to understand how vulnerability works, and I'm going to outsmart it. So I was ready, and I was really excited. As you know, it's not going to turn out well. Um,
3: <laughs> you know though. So I could tell you a lot about
7: shame, but I'd have to borrow everyone else's time. But here's what I can tell you that it boils down to, and this may be one of the most important things that I've ever learned in the decade of doing this research. My one year has turned into six years, thousands of stories, hundreds of long interviews, focus groups. At one point, people were sending me journal pages and sending me their stories, um, thousands of pieces of data um, and six years, and I kind of got a handle on it. I kind of understood this is what shame is, this is how it works. I wrote a book, I published a theory, but something was not okay. Um, And what it was is that if I roughly took the people I interviewed and divided them into people who really have a sense of worthiness, that's what this comes down to, a sense of worthiness. They have a strong sense of love and belonging and folks who struggle for it and folks who are always wondering if they're good enough. There was only one variable that separated the people who have a strong sense of love and belonging and the people who really struggle for it and that was the people who have a strong sense of love and belonging believe they're worthy of love and belonging. They believe they're worthy. And to me the hard part of the one thing that keeps us out of connection is our fear that we're not worthy of connection was something that personally and professionally I felt like I needed to understand better. So what I did is I took all of the interviews where I saw worthiness, where I saw people living that way, and just looked at those. What do these people have in common? And I have, I have a slight office supply addiction, but that's another talk. Um, so I had a manila, notebook, a manila folder and I had a Sharpie, and I was like, what am I gonna call this research? And the first words that came to my mind were wholehearted. These are kind of wholehearted people living from this deep sense of worthiness. So I wrote at the top of the manila folder, and I started looking at the data. In fact, I did it first in, this very four, in a four-day, very intensive data analysis where I went back, pulled these interviews, pulled the stories, pulled the incidents. What's the, what's the theme? What's the pattern? My husband left town with the kids um, because I always go into this kind of Jackson Pollock crazy thing where I'm just like writing and, and going and kind of just in my researcher mode. And so here's what I found. What they had in common was a sense of courage. And I want to separate courage and bravery for you for a minute. Courage, the original definition of courage, when it first came into the English language, it's from the Latin word cur, meaning heart. And the original definition was to tell the story of who you are with your whole heart. And so these folks had very simply the courage to be imperfect, they had the compassion to be kind to themselves first and then to others because as it turns out, we can't practice compassion with other people if we can't treat ourselves kindly. And the last was they had connection, and this was the hard part, as a result of authenticity. They were willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to be who they were, which is you have to absolutely do that for connection. The other thing that they had in common was this, they fully embraced vulnerability. They believed that what made them vulnerable made them beautiful. They didn't talk about vulnerability being comfortable, nor did they really talk about it being excruciating, as I had heard earlier in the shame interviewing, They just talked about it being necessary. They talked about the willingness to say, I love you first. The willingness to do something where there are no guarantees. The willingness to breathe through waiting for the doctor to call after your mammogram. The willing to invest in a relationship that may or may not work out. They thought this was fundamental. I personally thought it was betrayal. Um, I could not believe I had pledged allegiance to research. Where our job, you know, the definition of research is to control, control and predict, to study phenomenon for the, reason, for the explicit reason to control and predict. And now my very, you know, my mission to control and predict had turned up the answer that the way to live is with vulnerability and to stop controlling and predicting. This led to a little breakdown, which actually looked more like this, Um, and it did. It led to a, I call it a breakdown, my therapist calls it a spiritual awakening. Spiritual lightning sounds better than breakdown, but I assure you it was a breakdown and I had to put my data away and go find a therapist. Let me tell you something. You know who you are when you call your friends and say, I think I need to see somebody who do you have any recommendations? Because about five of my friends are like, I wouldn't want to be your therapist.
3: And I was like, what does that
7: mean? And they're like, I'm just saying, you know, like, don't bring your measuring stick. like, okay. So I found a therapist. My first meeting with her, Diana, I brought in my list of the way the wholehearted live. And I sat down, and she said, you know, how are you? And I said, I'm great. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. And she said, what's going on? And I said, and this is a therapist who sees therapists, because we have to go to those, because their BS meters are good. Um,
3: Laughter
7: and so I said, here's the thing, I'm struggling. And she said, what's the struggle? And I said, well, I have a vulnerability issue. And you know, and I know that vulnerability is kind of the core of shame and fear and our struggle for worthiness. But it appears that it's also the birthplace of joy, of creativity, of belonging, of love. And I, I think I have a problem. And I just, I need some help. And I said, but here's the thing, no family stuff, no childhood shit. I just, I just need some strategies. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So she goes like this. And then I said, it's bad, right? She said, It's neither good nor bad. (laughs) It it just is what it is. And I said, oh, my God, this is going to suck.
3: And
7: it did, and it didn't. Um, And it took about a year. And you know how there are people that, like, when they realize that vulnerability and tenderness are important, that they kind of surrender and walk into it? A, that's not me and B, I don't even hang out with people like that. Um, For me, it was a year-long street fight. It was a slugfest. Vulnerability pushed, I pushed back. I lost um, the fight, but probably won my life back. And so then I went back into the research and spent the next couple of years really trying to understand what they, the wholehearted, Um, What the choices they were making and and what, what what, what are we doing with vulnerability? Why do we struggle with it so much? Am I alone in struggling with vulnerability? No. So this is what I learned. We numb vulnerability. When we're waiting for the call, it was funny. I sent something out on Twitter and on Facebook that says, how would you define vulnerability? What makes you feel vulnerable? And within an hour and a half, I had 150 responses. Um, Because I wanted to know, you know, what's out there. Having to ask my husband for help because I'm sick and we're newly married. Um, Initiating sex with my husband. Initiating sex with my wife. Being turned down. Asking someone out. Waiting for the doctor to call back. Getting laid off. Laying off people. This is the world we live in. We live in a vulnerable world. And one of the ways we deal with it is we numb vulnerability. And I think there's evidence. And it's not the only reason this evidence exists, but I think that it's a, a, a huge cause. We are the most in debt, obese, addicted, and medicated adult cohort in U.S. history. The problem is, and I learned this from the research, that you cannot selectively numb emotion you can't say here's the bad stuff here's vulnerability, here's grief, here's shame, here's fear, here's disappointment I don't want to feel these I'm gonna have a couple of beers and a banana nut muffin I don't want to feel these and I know that's that's knowing laughter, I I hack into your lives for a living I know that's... oh god You can't numb those hard feelings without numbing the other affects or emotions. You cannot selectively numb. So when we numb those, we numb joy. We numb gratitude. We numb happiness. And then we are miserable and we are looking for purpose and meaning. And then we feel vulnerable, so then we have a couple of beers and a banana nut muffin. And it becomes this dangerous cycle. One of the things that I think that we need to think about is why and how we numb. And it doesn't just have to be addiction. The other thing we do is we make everything that's uncertain, certain. Religion has gone from a belief in faith and mystery to certainty. I'm right, you're wrong, shut up. That's it. Just certain. The more afraid we are, the more vulnerable we are, the more afraid we are. This is what politics looks like today. There's no discourse anymore. There's no conversation. There's just blame. You, know what blame. you know how blame is described in the research? A way to discharge pain and discomfort. We perfect. If there's anyone who wants their life to look like this, it would be me. But it doesn't work. Because what we do is we take fat from our butts and put it in our cheeks.
3: <laughs>
7: Which just, I hope in hundred years, people will look back and go, wow.
3: You know? <laughs> um,
7: and we perfect, most dangerously, our children. Let me tell you what we think about children. They're hardwired for struggle when they get here. When you hold those perfect little babies in your hand, our job is not to say, look at her, she's perfect. My job is just to keep her perfect, make sure she makes the tennis team by fifth grade and Yale by seventh grade. <laughs> That's not our job. Our job is to look and say, you know what? You're imperfect and you're wired for struggle, but you are worthy of love and belonging. That's our job. Show me a generation of kids raised like that and we'll end the problems that I think that we see today. We pretend. That what we do doesn't have an effect on people. We do that in our personal lives. We do that corporate, whether it's a bailout, an oil spill, a recall. We pretend like what we're doing doesn't have a huge impact on other people. I would say to companies, this is not our first rodeo, people. We just need you to be authentic and real and say, we're sorry. We'll fix it. But there's another way, and I'll leave you with this. This is what I have found. To let ourselves be seen, deeply seen, vulnerably seen. To love with our whole heart, even though there's no guarantee. And that's really hard, and I can tell you as a parent, that's excruciatingly difficult. To practice gratitude and joy in those moments of kind of terror when we're wondering Can I love you this much? Can I believe in this as passionately? Can I be this fierce about this? Just to be able to stop and instead of catastrophizing what might happen, to say, I'm just so grateful, because to feel this vulnerable means I'm alive. And the last, which I think is probably the most important, is to believe that we're enough. Because when we work from a place, I believe, that says, I'm enough, then we stop screaming and start listening. We're kinder and gentler to the people around us, and we're kinder and gentler to ourselves. That's all I have. Thank you.
6: My name is Mark. I don't know, is anybody vulnerable, vulnerable enough that uh, they could make any comment before we close? <laughs> Thank you, Scott. Yes. Great, thank you, thank you. Okay, well, I think we've expired my time allotted, and uh, thank you very much.
1: I think there, I think there will be a rich conversation uh, in the coffee hour. Um, So uh, go to it, uh, and I'll do my. Is there a a, a song? Are we doing a song? Okay. If you just rise. The difference between me and the next person is that they're whole and I'm not. The difference between me and the next person is that they've got their life together and I don't. The difference between me and the next person is that they know what they're going to do with the rest of their life and I don't. That's how we see the world. But as Brene Brown has shared with us, the difference between us and others is minimal. Because we're all afraid. We're all vulnerable. We all don't know what's coming next. We're all sitting on our yesterdays and wishing they were different. But we have one another. And in that interplay between us and the conversations we have and the hope that we share and the vulnerability that we expose, we strengthen those connections. So I send you out into a world and I invite you to see that world as the place where those connections can thrive and shift and change us and make that world a stronger and richer place. That is your work. That is what the rest of your life can be. And it can be beautiful. So go from this place to that work. Thank you.
0: been listening to a podcast from West Hill United Church located in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. These podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our listeners, volunteers, and members of our community. To donate, go to our website, www.westhill.net, and click on the Canada Helps button, or go to www.westhill.net forward slash donate.